So Brilliant. hello and welcome to everybody. I am Derek Tracy. I am one of the Kaleidoscope team. We've got four of us here today. Grateful that you're after hanging around for it. So this is the first time we've done this. As you're probably aware, we do a column in the British Journal once a month, and we are trying to put this out live to have a bit of a discussion around some research that we find interesting. So we've got a panel discussion in a sense. Each of the four of us is going to talk about a paper, and then we're going to have a bit of a chat at the end of it. It'll take us about half an hour or so. You can engage by either using chat or the Q&A function, and we'll try and make it interactive with folk have interesting things to say. So I'm going to start off by passing it to Suki Shergill, who's going to talk to us why it matters how people find treatments helpful or not when it comes to depression. Uh, thank you, Derek. Uh, I guess there's, during the COVID, one of the kind of epiphenomenon have been the fact that people have been quite concerned about the impact of all of this kind of lockdown on people's mental health. And if you look to see what the kind of most prevalent uh, mental health risk is, it's probably around becoming depressed. And a lot of people require routine and they require contact to be able to use that. If you look at the literature in terms of depression, most of that and treatments, most of that is really focused on what we, what's the effect of treatments and how well do they work. And that arouses quite a lot of kind of strong passion in people in terms of whether drugs are useful or whether psychological treatments are useful. So one of the things that has been relatively neglected has really been about what proportion of folk actually who suffer from a kind of major depressive disorder, what proportion of them actually find treatment helpful. And it's interesting that there's a data from the World Health Organization Mental Health Survey, which kind of looked at around 80,000 people spread across 16 countries. Half of the countries were from kind of high income and the other half from low and middle income countries. And one of the questions that they asked was, have you you've had depression and how helpful did you find the treatment for that? And it's not a question that's really been addressed at that kind of level previously. And what the DARE data showed is that, that actually, to start from the beginning, about only about 40% of the people with kind of major, with major depressive disorder had actually received treatment. And that differed between the high income and the low income countries in the sense that in the high income countries, around half of the people had actually been, uh, had received treatment, whilst in the lower income countries, it was only around a quarter. Of the whole sample with depression, 70% of the people with depression had felt that they, who'd received the treatment, felt that that had actually been helpful for them. And there wasn't much of a difference between that proportion, either in the high income or the low income countries. And the reason that people, uh, the kind of two variables in whether treatment was helpful or unhelpful was really whether they'd been seen by a professional and they'd found them helpful or whether they'd been seen by a professional, not found them helpful, and actually persisted with treatment until they did find somebody who, who was able to, to help them. And what their data showed was that if you saw uh, one person to help you, uh, you could, about 40% of these people did found it helpful, but if you, if that person was unhelpful and you moved on to the second one, that proportion went up to 60%. And that eventually, if you saw enough people, you were persistent enough in seeking help, that might go up to kind of 95%. So almost all people would find it useful if you were persistent enough. The kind of lessons, the more subtle lessons within the data were really around the fact that 
they covered a whole bit because of this low income countries being included in the sample and the high income countries they could the people who were treating them could be either be specialists or kind of generalists or they could be kind of complementary or alternative therapists and the data showed that the specialists in mental health who where they received treatment were generally perceived as being more helpful to those people who received treatment from mental health professionals felt that that was a more helpful end of their treatment but the people who were generalists or offered complementary or alternative therapies were people were much more likely to persist with those so they would go back even if it was un, the first one was unhelpful they would go back to a second or a third person so actually there wasn't a fundamental difference between those uh, the type of therapy that you received because one you found it helpful earlier on the other one you persisted until you found something which is helpful which is quite an interesting uh, finding they looked at the demographic of the people who found treatment more helpful and they tended to people people who were older and who were better educated they also found an association between the shorter your time from developing symptoms to receiving treatment and being seen by a mental health specialist that those people tended to find tended to find treatment as being more more helpful for them the only the slight subtlety in that was that in the increased the people who saw a mental health specialist tended to be more persistent in the sense that even if it was unhelpful at their first contact, they were happy to kind of continue seeing the person again or different professionals in order to get, get, the, uh, to, to get to the point where they found it helpful. And I guess finally, just to kind of draw that together, the question really is of what's the message in terms of our treatment of people who, who, are, who are depressed and who come for looking, seeking help. And I think, I think it's important that actually probably the most useful thing that comes out of that is that if you can say early on that the, the treatment for depression is part of a trial and error process, that it's not that the first treatment will necessarily be the most efficient, but it's something which is involves a shared decision making between the patient and the person who's treating them and measuring that in some way then allows you to actually have a, if things are not going well, then you can actually see that the patient or is unhappy or has got a negative kind of evaluation of the treatment and that then means that you can then encourage them to kind of persist with that because if treatment is thought to be helpful then that would encourage people to a persist and we know that the more you persist with treatment the more likely you are to benefit from it but also that would potentially also bring them back if you find it helpful then you're more likely to come back to for help and those are the kind of things which will impact on improving outcomes in remission if you become ill again or for things like where people are hopeless about the future and feel that things are not going to change where they may become suicidal and but for that kind of information you're going to need to have longitudinal data whereas this kind of study just offers a cross-sectional kind of analysis of what's out there so i thought it was quite an interesting uh, perspective looking at that kind of patient frame. But it, so it sounds like there's, there's a message there for people who are using services, but also for services themselves about how we look at treatments and what information we give out. Yeah, I think for both of those things are relevant. A, I think often people don't actually ask, you know, we, have, we often have symptom scales to see whether people are improving or not, but whether people have found the service helpful is part of the service 
adding that in as a part of a service provision, it sounds like it's a kind of a bit of a no-brainer, really, to be able to see what and what aspects people find useful and how we can optimise those, particularly if we want people to come back and show persistence in looking for help. Okay, I was going to talk about um, a, a paper on, well, I suppose a follow-on for depression for some people about, about the, the outcome of suicide, which is a really difficult topic to talk about. There's a paper from the BMJ from about a couple of months ago, Nieder Krotenthaler. It's the hardest part of my day trying to get that right. It's a team from Austria. And they, they looked at a really interesting part when it comes to suicide. They looked at the impact specifically of celebrity suicides and how that hits us. And, and part of it, there's, I think we're all aware, Robin Williams recently where he passed away and the, the, the media impact of that. And I think back to when I'm, I was younger, uh, Kurt Cobain, and these things really stick with us. And so their question was, in the realm of suicide and suicide reporting, is there a particular impact that has when someone who has famous died? And you can imagine it's a type of thing that's actually a little bit tricky to study because these events are not so common and how do you do it? So the BMJ paper, they went back over 40 years looking at the reporting of famous people's deaths. And then they looked at where studies have reported the suicide rate before and afterwards. It took a month before and after to compare it. And it was really interesting that the suicide rate goes up by 13%. And they were trying to analyze the best data available, the best studies. So they pulled about 30 studies that were reasonable quality. And 13% is a lot. So they, they contrasted the paper to the financial shock of 2008, where suicide rate went up by 6%. So that's kind of double that. And the other thing that was really interesting with the study was when the media reported the way the person took their own life, there was a 30% increase in deaths by the same method. And then the third thing I thought was really interesting with it, which is important for, I suppose, if there are clinicians listening, that did not hold true for general reporting of death by suicide of non-celebrities. So this finding of reporting a suicide death has, seems to have a really strong impact, but in celebrity reporting, not in general public deaths. And, and the paper notes that this, this does have an impact and what, what are you going to do about it? And there are WHO guidelines on how newspapers should report it. And then there, there are guidelines within the UK with the Press Association. But the, the reason I found it interesting is, is one, that finding of the deaths. But the second thing is we, we live in an era of fake news. We live in an era of social media. And it does seem to be something about a message that's going out. How do you not sensationalize something that people want to hear about? And what do we do with that? Yeah, I do. That's my question to you. What do we do with it? <laughs> well, actually, when you were talking, I think what stuck out, stuck out to me is sort of the relational aspect of this, that actually uh, I know from the paper that in fact this effect is more profound if people feel uh, some sort of uh, identifier with the celebrity at hand. And it reminded me of a, a paper I saw about six years ago in science where they were talking about the ways in which we uh, sort of assimilate groups of people by closeness or, or relation to ourselves within the brain. And then in fact, it, it matters. Our, our people are sort of um, held in the same place in the brain, our, our close tight-knit people, our family and the people that we would call our chosen family. Um, and then everyone else is kind of somewhere else. And I, I wonder if there's ever been, I, I, I don't know, I'm putting it out to the guys, but I'm wondering about that idea of the relational aspect of the celebrity relationship to this, to this behavior. I think so. So for me personally, I think that so the 
because I was younger, I suppose I was listening to the music. I had a relationship with the band. And I'm, 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 guess, I'm guessing it does. So I, I, I suppose that's the part that's not studied. I, what, I can't imagine there's just a general rise in the population more generally. I think there's got to be some connection. And then you think maybe how do you target it? So it, again, I'm, I'm aware of a death in a pop band in, from Korea. That I've, I'm, I, My understanding of their music is they have a very young audience too. So not, not only is there an issue about how they re- report it, but then do you need to target interventions out? The corollary of that is really, I mean, that, that the reason why advertising is so important and it plays such a major role is that its whole purpose is to get you to identify with somebody who's uh, high profile. And then they want to change your behavior in a particular way, which is to usually to buy things or to be related to a particular football club or something. So I kind of think, I guess that the the link with identification bringing that into your own kind of feeling that that's somebody who's very close to you, a bit like, almost like family, is the basis of that. And then the the kind of the behavioral association when things are not have, don't go well with that also then means that, that impacts you much more directly. And I guess the other thing is that reading about these things and people that you identify with then kind of lowers your threshold for certain kinds of behavior, whether it's for positive or for negative uh, kinds of behavior, social behavior. I think that's really people are, sorry, if people are actually purposefully cultivating this relationship for profit, then is there accountability there when we have these kind of negative impacts on the other side? And of course, we can have these sort of guidelines for reporting, but actually there seems to be no guidelines in terms of generating that relationship up front. Um, just maybe a bigger picture question. You've also reminded me, the other, the other paper we had in Kaleidoscope some time ago was about the, uh, I think it's a Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. I have to say, I haven't seen it. But my understanding is about a young girl who takes her life and leaves behind a series of cassettes explaining why she did what she did. And it, it, my memory of the time was that it was reported as being done in a relatively sensitive way. But there were U.S. days at the time looking at a rise in young people who died by suicide. So it comes back again to get maybe about identification and, and how do you manage that? And at the same time, I guess, is artistic and creative freedom, especially as, again, as I understand it, that that was done relatively sensitively in that series. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to move on to that. Dan is going to give the next paper. My understanding is originally Dan was going to do a randomized control trial on why cats pee on duvets. But we decided it was too hot for our first episode. So instead of that, he's going to do something about reliability and fMRI. But we might come back to pat, cats peeing on duvets later on. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Yeah, so um, so got a bit tangential to the to the last two papers that we were talking about, but I think I think thematically related to the idea of understanding data. So there's a paper that caught my attention a couple of months back, which was by a group called the Neuroimaging Analysis Replication and Prediction Study, so NARPS for short. Um, and what they did was they uh, they got a data set consisting of just about a hundred participants, you know, conducted or participating in a really, very standard fMRI functional neuroimaging study. And they gave it to a total of 70 individual separate labs around the world and said, right, using your usual analysis protocol for your lab, how you would normally analyze a data set of this sort, 
here's nine hypotheses that we, we want to test. I mean, what you want to do is we, you analyze your data, report to us how you analyzed it from, you know, literally from the steps of downloading the data onto a hard drive somewhere, all the way through the pre-processing, um, making, you know, making clear and plotting out how you did that, and then just give us a yes, no answer for each of these nine hypotheses. And the yes, no answer is, is, is the familiar null hypothesis significance testing type answer, which is, is the hypothesis significant at some you know, arbitrary threshold of significance? And this, this was the surprising part of this uh, analysis, perhaps unsurprising, is it was intended to highlight that the pipeline from raw data coming off of a, a device like an AI machine that produces really high volumes of data per participant. The idea is no longer can you file up a copy of Excel or SPSS and analyze your data in there. Now you need teams and teams of people and you need to pump that data into one end of a pipeline and there's a series of, uh, there's a sequence of processing steps where each processing step depends on the step before it. So a decision you make at step one will affect step two, which will affect step three. And, and this is where I thought this paper tapped into something really interesting because in 2016, Sarah Stegan and some colleagues published a paper in um, Perspectives on Psychological Sciences, called, uh, which is about this, they introduced this idea of multiverse analysis. Um, and multiverse analysis is this, is when you have, when you read a significant result, you know, you say that the hypothesis or the null was rejected at p less than 0.05 you're convinced that that's the answer to the problem and then you, you read the rest of the paper in the context of knowing that but what you don't have access to in a majority of scientific literature in your 3,000 word articles you just don't know all the decisions that were made from the point where the data arrived on someone's laptop and all of those micro decisions and pipelines or steps in those pipe in that pipeline and so you've no idea right at the start if they, you know, if they decided to exclude people because they were outliers on a, uh, on a reaction time task, you've no idea whether or not that was a decision that then made an impact on the final yes, no binary answer. So the proposal from, from Stegan was you, uh, for each step of the pipeline, so for each decision you make, let's assume that you only make two decisions at each step. So I'm going to exclude people who scored this high or this low. You, you essentially you follow that through and so you make both decisions and then you move to step two and then step two is executed for both decisions excluding people at that threshold excluding people at a different threshold and then for each of those you branch off again so for each decision you make in the pipeline you essentially analyze the data as if you would made both decisions at each step in the pipeline so this this multiverse analysis means that you might for example present instead of one result which is significant or non-significant you would instead present results for each or every possible combination of those steps in the pipeline and this it struck me as a really interesting idea for reproducibility and transparency because you never really you would never have access to that information when you just read the headline or the abstract of the paper or indeed if you read the whole paper so uh, the NARPS consortium did the same thing with, with this fMRI data um, and what they did is they said report to us your um, binary outcome, yes, no, for these hypotheses, nine hypotheses. The staggering thing is, and MRI data, I think, really exemplifies this because it's so high volume that you have to make lots of decisions 
about um, what you would think of plausible decisions about pre-processing of the data. And what they found is that of these nine hypotheses, there was only one hypothesis where 84% of the groups agreed on the significance of the finding. Um, for three of the hypotheses, they found that, you know, they, people were consistently saying they were non-significant. So one, very significant, the other three hypotheses, non-significant. And there was a massive variation in the remaining five hypotheses. So what this really highlighted was that decisions you make in that pipeline do make a difference. Now, the paper goes through in elaborate detail analyses trying to show which decisions in that pipeline made a difference. And, and I guess for people who have an interest in fMRI, what was really striking was a decision right at the start of that pipeline that made a difference, which is the way you smooth that data, which is essentially an averaging technique to remove noise. So that made an enormous difference and indeed predicted whether or not you would generate a significant or a non-significant hypothesis. And, and that struck me as fascinating. So decision you make on day one, the third or fourth, fourth line of your script that runs your analysis, that makes a difference. They also found that the software you use, whether you use one of three or four different packages to analyze neuroimaging data, that also made a difference to the outcomes that you got. And if you think about, if you think about that, that's, that's almost magical because we live in a world where you know, we're used to processing for each participant up to a million variables or even more you know, in genomics, in, in fMRI work, uh, structural MRI work. So it's staggering to think that these decisions are rarely, you know, you, you could take a really, really important paper on 50 participants, which has an extraordinary impact or says something really remarkable about the functioning of cognition in the brain. However, you might have got a completely different result had you smoothed your data differently had you used FSL instead of SPM. You know, and this, this fascinates me because the whole principle of reproducibility, it could be that none of the stuff is reproducible because you haven't systematically analyzed all of the effects of each and every decision in your pipeline. So that was my spiel on that paper. I think it's a really good so, thing. The thing that, that bothers me with that is that sounds unfixable. <laughs> so that, that sounds a problem. So how can we have confidence in any data ever published ever again? I think there are answers to that. I, this is a personal point of view, but I think the answer to it is you just make it all available, right? You make your data visible to the outside world. You make your processing scripts visible to the outside world. And then anyone who has an interest, or, or perhaps more importantly, anyone who has a suspicion that your outcome, or sorry, your reported significant result is flaky, can do the analyses themselves. They can tease apart all the, you know, the assumptions that you made. Um, and isn't that exactly why it won't happen? So, so it allows other people to go over your flaky data. So yeah. that requires a real uh, fraternity of scientists to, to agree to do something noble. Yeah, you know the cost of these things too, right? So, you know, the cost of a neuroimaging study is in the order of hundreds of thousands to millions of pounds, right? So imagine, you know, making that, and then there's that one really important paper that, that, that changes the course or trajectory of a research group's work. And then imagine having to fess up but after spending all that time and money that actually on line 10 of your analysis script, you made a mistake. And as a result, you now got to rerun all the possible analyses, all the multiverse analyses that from line 11 of your script onwards, people are going to find that, I think, personally and professionally kind of challenging. But there've been examples recently. I mean, if you follow this kind of debate on Twitter, you'll see loads of people publishing well, sorry, posting tweets saying, you know, we, we messed this one up. This paper's got an error in it, and here's the reason. So th I think there's a movement towards it. I think it's quite, quite an exciting movement overall.
But we have to acknowledge that actually this idea of multiverse testing totally challenges the standard. Like there are statisticians rolling over in their grave right now, right? We've been told from the beginning that multiple testing is a sin. We have to come in with our a priori hypotheses. That's all you get to do. And then you have to put your data away the end. Um, and so what this does is sort of force a conversation about what theoretically we've been taught and what actually happens behind the scenes and how we might marry them for, frankly, um, better, more open science. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the principle, I think, of the multiverse thing is it's not so much about multiple correction for multiple comparisons that's the issue. It's actually saying, I'm going to present you 15 analyses as if they were done with 15 different sets of assumptions, right? So actually, that's quite powerful because if, if 14 of those multiverse results are consistent and one is inconsistent, well, then you go looking for the reason why that one is inconsistent. But you could be bolstered by the fact that 14 different pathways and all of the branches through that um, you got the same result. That's pretty awesome, right? So it's actually, it's a really neat confirmatory method, I think. I think it's actually, that's perhaps the way to frame it. If this is a way of confirming your result is really robust and not sensitive to silly decisions you might have made as the researcher doing the analysis. So I think it's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited by that idea. I guess the field is kind of gradually moving, not maybe not towards that kind of multiverse analysis, but certainly in terms of trying to increase the transparency and so even the rigor in terms of expecting people to pre-specify their hypotheses, it's very difficult now to get a paper published, at least in terms of clinical trials work, where you haven't pre-specified what, what kind of analysis you're proposing to do. And usually within that, you might specify some of those, not all of the decisions you've made, but certainly some of the decisions in terms of who stays in and who stays out. And I guess the kind of slightly wider uh, concern is around that, so many people are, you know, doing PhDs, very few of those are getting on to develop an academic career. And there is a disconnect in that because presumably anybody who's keen to do a PhD is actually keen to follow that academic track. And then this kind of how do you achieve success in that track is based on largely on your publication record and your record of kind of grant funding on your work. So if you produce a, a series of papers which are, have uninteresting or less kind of negative findings, your chances of getting a, a finding a, a smooth track to successful academic career is poorer than somebody who can rack up some interesting things. So the data shows that actually people are selectively using that decision-making process to m m to find a positive result in their data because that's the only thing that either their supervisors or the journals or you know c career bodies are interested in them producing and that generates something which then encourages that behavior which is presumably why we're at this stage where you know both psychology certainly psychology has had a lot of prominent discussion around how this kind of replication crisis that lots and lots of seminal studies are really difficult to do. And some funding bodies have actually put money aside just to fund work which will replicate seminal science in, in the field. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It speaks to this. There's a slightly perverse incentive to publish high surprising results. In fact, the big top shelf journals encourage it must be a surprising, novel, important, you know, almost astronomical finding. Maybe you should invert that and actually the number of times it survives a repeat multiverse analysis should determine the impact of the paper. You know? yeah. If 14 out of 15 multiverse analyses confirm the result, then yeah, you're in business. <laughs>
that you guys are taking some optimism from the basis that people are at least having these conversations now. Yeah, I think so, don't you? I mean, I, I see a lot of traction and the people talking about these things. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and so it's been, certainly been a bigger issue. I've seen us report this more in Kaleidoscope over the last 18 months. Just feels it's more in the water at the moment. So I'm going to move it on to our last paper for today. So to the uninformed observer, it might look like we got three men to jump in with their <laughs> expert tuppence worth first. But actually, the reason we did this is we thought about the papers in advance and we thought our three would be quite dull and that we'd finish with some Californian sunshine. Uh. So as I understand it, Dawn is going to tell us she's been looking at air pollution, whether or not it's good or bad for your brain. Yeah. So basically, I am kind of piggybacking off this idea of reproducibility. And um, I was really taken by a particular translational study. So something that we look at in animals to sort of relate back to human beings. And uh, because it was World Clean Air Day this week, I wanted to take a look at um, the sort of body of literature around the really robust and consistent findings that exposure to traffic related air pollution or, or being close to sort of freeways or motorways um, is, is problematic and associated with an increased level of neurodevelopmental disorders. So it could be any, any type of thing, but including autism spectrum disorder, ADHD. Um, and we've seen that actually levels of autism spectrum disorder, um, at least according to the US CDC, have gone up quite significantly. So they used to be sort of steady at about one to 68 children, and now they're about one to 59. Um, and the thing is, while we don't totally understand exactly the mechanisms underneath all of this, we definitely know there's a combination of sort of genetics and environment. And so focusing in on environment is incredibly promising because you could actually impact that, right? Like we're not quite there for the genetics yet, but we could make decisions from a, a public health standpoint that could have a positive effect uh, for lots and lots of people. So this is where the idea of translational models come in or animal models. And we've seen a lot of animal studies support this idea of uh, this sort of traffic related air pollution being associated with all kinds of things that we consider to be kind of animal markers of neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, but to date, there haven't been a really, a sort of a really good setup to mimic what is real life exposure. So they have um, lots of really clean papers that look at one particular element of air pollution or at extremely consistent and high levels, or there might involve anesthesia or single exposure. And we know that's not how people live. So um, basically what I saw was Jill Silverman's lab at uh, UC Davis in California, uh, set up a really great sort of simulation of real world exposure because a, a major autism uh, study, the CHARGE study found that the highest risk was associated with living within, I think it was, uh, closer than 309 meters to a major traffic area was, was a significant factor in development um, in autism later in life. And they particularly were able to focus it into sort of third trimester and early life exposure. So gave the, this study an opportunity to kind of frame it um, within that period of time. So what they did, so UC Davis is this beautiful bucolic sort of farmland space, uh, and they got an animal facility right in the Bay Area, right by, like, it's an absolute labyrinth of freeways that all come together in this space. And they actually got a facility, set it up, and they got a tube and piped in the air from just outside of the traffic tunnels, so not inside, so it was actually having a chance to kind of um, dissipate to some extent. 
so they, they kept a control group at Davis, although they did some, uh, some good controls to make sure transport wasn't a factor or whatever. Set up two different colonies, and these are all pregnant uh, rat females. And set one up to get that directly piped in traffic exposure, and the other ones were there as well, so they were still exposed to sort of the noise and vibrations that are associated with traffic, but in fact got really fancy filtered air, right? So you've got this situation where you've got a lot of different um, elements to control, but they made sure that the building was insulated just like our apartment would be, that you know, the vibration was controlled for, but they were, they were living in a way that you might if you needed commuter access to a, to a particular freeway belt. Um, and what they found is they effectively waited for all of these, these uh, rats to have their babies. And then they went ahead and they tested sort of two males and two fam females from each of these litters um, across a whole, whole range of things. So in kind of early days, what we would say is postnatal day four to 21, when they kind of wean, um, we looked at, at some just general developmental progression, sort of height, weight, reflexes, that sort of thing. Um, we also looked at ultrasonic vocalizations, um, vocalizations, which are sort of a way that uh, rats intuitively respond when they're isolated from their mother. Um, then from sort of the older sort of juvenile period of time, days 21 to 50, uh, they did some more behavioral studies, some learning and memory stuff. and. Um, you know, the controls all checked out, it was, it was pretty tight. What they found was really interesting. Um, by and large, they found that both groups that were in that three-way adjacent facility, both showed sort of clear impact of having these developing nervous systems exposed to, I mean, perhaps it's the noise and the vibration, but something about being in that space caused a whole bunch of um, negative impacts, so these decreased vocalizations, decreased height and weight, um, difficulty in sort of exploratory behavior and juvenile social behavior. So indicators that are tried and true animal models for things that we know are expressed in neurodevelopmental disorders. And the results were, were actually really clear in this, in this very kind of excellently curated real world model, as much as you can for rats. Um, we see real indicator that we should be taking some, some major steps to start mitigating this risk for people in at least late gestational age or, or early age. They started a pandemic to help, didn't they? Put down on air pollution. <laughs> to be fair. As I, as I understand things from the mainstream media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's a... I mean, there's a, more, there's a kind of extensive literature looking at kind of heavy metal exposure in neurodevelopmental disorders, which has kind of made the same story. And they've linked that to kind of learning disability, but also to autism spectrum disorder. And the, the theme that comes out of that is that it's these kind of environmental variables that you can control are things that you should really be looking at. And I think the... Uh, it's a particular problem in low and middle income countries where there's a balance between there's not much money often spent on cleaning up the environment near large factories and things. So you could argue just following Derek's point, actually, that with this uh, pandemic and the kind of lockdown and the decreased uh, environmental gases that have been evolved, you've almost got a kind of natural experiment if somebody could follow up if the exposure is clean enough within those kind of three to six months, where you've got a very low level of exposure that you could look at differences, perhaps not in animals, but certainly in certain developmental phases of human uh, 
uh, to see whether that actually impacts because I guess we think that there are critical periods of development which may be long enough or, or small enough to be caught with that kind of exposure. My understanding is that it's happening to so of course it's been slightly facetious but I think people are taking this as a bit of a natural experiment now and there's been early environmental work coming out so it'll be really interesting to see it's going to be messy data in some sense but it's, it's numbers will be large it'll be interesting to see what people do with COVID. Okay I'm kind of mindful that we've started late and we're going on, we've had people listening through. So I'm going to draw the first one to a close. But to say thank you for attendees who did join in. We had some little gremlins with our first one. We will get the links to the papers that we discussed up online. So if you're interested in that, we'll get them up for you. And we hope, despite the little technical problems, that you will join us again. We're going to do it again next month. So thank you for coming along. Thank you. Thanks for joining us.